0: Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In this episode, we're covering the news from last year's Conference of Parties, or COP28. One of the headlines is, of course, the new Loss and Damage Fund, established for countries most vulnerable to climate change, and I'll talk to our guests today about the potential for countries to draw on climate financing mechanisms like these to build and enhance their social protection systems. And we'll talk about the role of social protection in supporting the major transitions in energy, industry, and food systems that we'll need to make in order to reduce carbon emissions and meet global targets. With me today, we have three guests. Gala Dalet is Social Protection Officer for the Food and Agriculture Organization. Jana Bishla is ILO Technical Officer for Social Protection and Climate Change. And Anne Vaughan is Senior Advisor for Climate Change in the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security at USAID. Welcome, Gala, Jana and Anne.
1: Hi, Joanne and colleagues. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Hi, Joe. Thanks so much for the invite. i very looking forward to the discussion today.
3: Hi, Joe. Thanks so much for inviting me uh, to attend and excited to hear from you and colleagues.
0: Anne, can I come to you first for an overview of COP28? What were the key achievements and some of the controversies for the most recent COP?
3: No, sure. Thanks for the question. We really thought from the U.S. government perspective that COP28 was a a big success. The negotiations led to meaningful progress in four areas. Uh, First, the transition away from fossil fuels. Second, advancing the global goal on adaptation, uh, which is important for our call today. Uh, Third, country action and ambition toward decarbonization. And fourth, which kicked off the entire convening of the top part of COP, Was agreement on the fund to support particularly vulnerable countries in responding to loss and damage. Uh, Initial pledges to the fund totaled approximately 700 million, and we think this represents an important complement to other tools that address climate impacts, including what USA's longstanding bilateral partnerships with countries around the world. And then, from the global perspective, we thought this COP also through the presidency's action agenda, it really put food security and health at the forefront, and two sectors that are already deeply impacted by climate change. We also thought it was important that relief, recovery, and peace theme was elevated for the first time, which is really important for communities that are living in fragile contexts who are disproportionately affected by climate change. And then other big, just from the U.S. government perspective, other big top lines from, from us was the announcement that we're on track to meet our goal to quadruple U.S. international public climate finance for developing countries to more than $11 billion a year by 2024, um, including a six-fold increase in financing for adaptation. So we think there's, there's a lot to celebrate coming out of this COP, but we also know and realize there's some big questions remaining to ensure the world continues to decarbonize and keep the 1.5 goal alive.
0: So Gala, can I come to you to ask what climate financing mechanisms have previously been agreed through the COP processes? And what does the new loss and damage fund add to the mix?
1: Thanks, Joe, for the question and thanks for and for the overview. So I would say that The Green Environmental Facility, better known as GEF, but also the Green Climate Fund, um, better known as GCF, are still the main two climate financing mechanisms agreed upon in previous COP, and both have been critical platforms to enhance financing options and support for climate action, in particular in developing countries. But so why and how is the loss and damage fund new? I would say because in the previous and existing climate financing mechanisms, you find adaptation and mitigation objectives very clear, but no recognition that loss and damage could potentially be a third pillar of climate action that uh, the global community should be looking at. So the, the loss and damage fund goes beyond the traditional, similar, but um, differentiated responsibilities of countries in the face of climate change since it pledges a direct support from developed countries to vulnerable territories in the global south, especially small islands. In addition to that, there are also the non-economic issues that uh, we might mention. So, for example, the impact of rising sea levels or warming waters in the loss of ocean-related cultural heritage. So, it, the challenge here, I think, will be to determine eligibility, so as well as the distribution of resources. And the fact that the board members are equally split of the fund between developed and non developed countries you may signal an effort uh, to engage in the fairest negotiation possible. Uh, and this would uh, be crucial not to support countries that contribute the less to climate change, but are uh, disproportionately affected by it. So, let's hope the pledges result in concrete action. Thank you, Gala. And that point
0: about equity and how the fund will work is really important. But I note also, of course, that you know the process of negotiating outcomes in COP is contested, and particularly while I know small island states really welcomed the establishment of the loss and damage fund, something that they've been asking for many years. There was nevertheless some controversy about the way that emissions targets were established under this COP and, you know, just really recognising, of course, that the climate change is affecting different countries in different ways. Jana, I wanted to ask you how the fund will work or what we know about how the fund will work in terms of the kinds of actions or investments it will fund, who will be eligible, how countries will be able to access the resources, and also what still needs to be worked through.
2: Thanks a lot, Joe. I think that's a really good question. That's already been mentioned. Actually, quite a lot of this detail will still need to be ironed out, especially over the coming year. But I think that the decision taken at, lo- at COP28 regarding uh, the Loss and Damage Fund does give us some indication already about how the fund might work, or at least how it should work. So first of all, countries agreed that the Loss and Damage Fund, including its secretariat, uh, will be hosted by the World Bank starting with an interim hosting period of about four years. But at the same time, the fund's operations will be supervised and governed uh, by an independent board. And this board will have members from both developed and developing countries. So a lot of these decisions to the questions that you mentioned will be taken by the board. Um, so this might involve things around how countries can access the resources, but also the kinds of investments that the fund might be supporting. So, for example, in terms of access to the resources of the fund, we know that it's quite likely that there will be a way for countries to obtain direct budget support for their national governments through grants or also highly concessional loans, but that there might also be indirect ways of accessing funds through intermediary agencies such as other multilateral organizations, for example, UN agencies or bilateral or subnational entities and another really important element of this is that there also really needs to be direct ways for affected communities um especially uh, indigenous populations to gain um access directly to small grants for example to support um recovery after climate related events and that um these funds will need to be distributed quite rapidly. And I think those two things are are still challenges that we really need to see how how that's going to work out in practice. And then in terms of the kinds of investments, um, it'll be activities related to responding to both economic and non-economic losses and damages. And perhaps what's most interesting for us and maybe to the listeners, since this is a podcast related to social protection, is that There is a growing awareness that social protection can play a role in addressing losses and damages. And and this has been reflected in the decision taken at COP, which includes a recommendation for organizations like the World Bank, the ILO and others to scale up support for adaptive social protection mechanisms in the context of loss and damage.
0: That's fantastic. Well, that takes us into the next set of questions, which of course are about the role of social protection. On this podcast, we've featured a number of episodes about the various ways social protection systems could be called on to help communities build resilience to climate shocks, mitigate the impacts of climate change, and even transition to low-carbon economies. Gala, can I ask you to give me some examples of how countries are looking at social protection for climate adaptation and mitigation?
1: That's a great question, but let me just start by sharing two facts to- kind of frame uh, and give additional context to the question. So first that the 2022 IPCC report on adaptation argues with high confidence that integrated multisectoral strategies then incorporate social protection are effective adaptation responses. So with that, I want to highlight that there is a growing body of evidence already pointing out to the role of social protection in increasing adaptive and absorptive capacities of households. Secondly, and I think very importantly, the same report writes that, for example, along women or indigenous peoples and other marginalized communities, it said that peoples without social protection are particularly vulnerable to climate. And this is, for example, reflected in a recent study by the Inter-American Development Bank that finds a striking correspondence between poverty levels and high-value ecosystems in the Latin America and Caribbean region. So, for example, in the region, in the five countries with the greatest biodiversity, on average... 70% of poor people live in areas with high value ecosystems. So, which shows a concrete convergence between climate and socioeconomic goals. Now, to your question um, countries are indeed stepping up efforts to leverage social protection systems to meet adaptation and mitigation objectives. And I think that also is reflected in the recent COP declarations. But the first example I would like to share is Paraguay's, so where the PROESA program. Which has been implemented by the government and by FAO, and funded by the GCF for a number of years now, targets beneficiaries of the national flagship cash Transport program, which is at the Kopora, for receiving additional financial and technical support to update practices and increase production, condition upon the conservation or restoration of native forests. On the other hand, for example, in Ethiopia, now going to sub-Saharan Africa, studies have found that the PSNP Public Works increased tree cover by 3.8%, leading to carbon sequestration equivalent to about 1.5 of Ethiopia's annual emissions reduction pledged by its national nationally determined contribution you know, to meet the Paris Agreement goals. Finally, for example, in Malawi, FAO found that beneficiaries of the Malawi Social Action Funds adopted soil and water conservation structures, such as physical bonds, for example, but also led to an uptake of uh, organic fertilizer. So there is many tweaks in the designs of social protection programs to meet climate goals, which are increasing, but still not in a, let's say, convincing path I would say for now. Thank
0: you. I did want to ask a little bit about the link with climate financing and whether some of these national interventions have, or some of these countries have been able to draw on financing under established mechanisms to help fund some of these initiatives.
1: Thanks, Joanne. And if I may uh, detail a bit more the Proesa program on Paraguay, just to specify that the, the GCF funds are pledged and given to, to countries upon the condition that the program is scaled up. And also that's the ultimate objective. So it's not just a, a pilot projects; it's really seed funding an important seed funding to be able to turn projects into national policies or increase and enhance the coverage of existing social protection programs that are already in place. So that's the primary objective and that's why these funds are so important and really play a catalytic role in in that sense at national level. Jana,
0: so what is the potential for social protection to respond to climate-related loss and damage in particular? We were drawing some distinctions there between what we mean by adaptation and mitigation and what we mean when um, that kind of loss and damage is um, perhaps irrevocable. So... What is the potential for social protection um, in this space?
2: Yes, thanks, um, Joe. The short answer is that the potential is huge. First of all, uh, as we know, the core objective of social protection is to prevent and reduce poverty, um, which in turn um, reduces people's vulnerability to climate risks in the first place. And we actually have quite a lot of evidence now that shows that the delivery of regular and predictable benefits increases people's ability not only to prepare for, but also to cope and recover from shocks when they occur. And this includes climate-related ones. And this, quite interestingly, I think, applies to both economic and some non-economic losses and damages, such as, for example, health impacts. So, in fact, a key element, for example, of a social protection system is social health protection, which aims to ensure that everyone has access to healthcare without financial hardship. And if we think about the increased health impacts that we can expect it, uh, that we can expect to see from both extreme climate events as well as slow onset changes then i think it's quite clear that you know extending social health protection especially in in climate vulnerable countries is absolutely key in addition to extending all sorts of other forms of social protection Um, And then secondly, social protection can also provide additional income support to those affected by climate-related disasters. Uh, And we've seen, for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic that, you know, social protection systems and programs around the world have this ability to flexibly expand as different events occur. So, for example, if you think that, you know, there might be a, a child benefit program in a certain country that has quite a wide coverage. You could provide additional support to people affected by a flood, for example, right? So, you know, and this is recognizing the fact that people have increased needs during these kinds of extreme events. Or similarly, you could expand different programs to people that are not yet covered by the system, but that are or that have been affected by certain events. And in addition to that, um, what we've also seen in recent years is that there have actually been quite a lot of. Um, really great innovations emerging regarding the integration of social protection systems with um, climate risk management approaches, um, such as, for example, linking payments to early warning systems or anticipatory action, uh, You know, developing contingency protocols, or also developing climate risk-informed reserve funds of different schemes or also of the financing of the system as a whole. But I think the really important message here is that for leveraging social protection systems for loss and damage response, which I think we should absolutely do because it's one of the most sustainable and at the same time cost-effective options that we have, it's really important that we consider social protection not only as a delivery channel for disaster response, but rather that we think of it as a sector or a system that requires investment and climate proofing. And this is especially important in many climate vulnerable countries where systems are still emerging and where up to 80% of the population actually don't receive any access to any social protection benefits at all. And this leaves populations highly vulnerable to experiencing losses and damages from climate risks. And so that's why I think it's quite crucial that the loss and damage fund will take quite a holistic approach in the sense that it invests in the strengthening of systems crisis times, but also non-crisis times. And in addition to that, provide countries with support to respond to emergency situations. And for all the
0: potential that we've just been describing, the examples of climate financing being used for social protection are fairly few. Do you have a sense of why this is
3: so? And
0: should social protection receive greater consideration?
3: So, Joe, in, in short, yes, we should be scaling up and encouraging countries to include more social protection in their NAPs or national adaptation plans. Um, because as we know, I think as both Gala and Jana have just said, we, we know it, it works to help communities respond to, to climate and other shocks too. And Joe, you asked a good question on why why are there so few examples um, of climate finance being used for social protection? I, I'm hoping though that we're, we're turning a corner. Um, we haven't seen too many examples to date. It's still a new idea. And sometimes it's pretty complicated on what um, we're trying to do and link together. If you start talking about disaster risk financing and social protection, these are system level changes that often are, are can be challenging to do. But I think we've got the potential and the evidence base has really grown over the last three to four years. Just as as one example of that, the Global Shield financing facility has been stood up and financed. I think that's a good example that we can sort of use as a illustrative example of how we can make sure we're thinking more about the benefits of social protection. And I think it was Gala that mentioned earlier Malawi. And there's such a good example where the Global Shield provided about $10 million for the government of Malawi to purchase drought insurance from ARC Limited or African Risk Capacity Limited to do, uh, fund emergency cash transfer pro- programs as part of Malawi Social Support for Resilient Livelihoods Project. And this said we're building off of previous experience. This mechanism was first implemented during the 2021-22 rainfall season in three districts to help 74,000 poor and vulnerable households who are facing compounded shocks. And it resulted in a payout. So governments are seeing that this is working and there was a, pay- a payout of 14.2 million for households that year. That's significant. And then... And these emergency cash transfers help households buy food. So, seeing the success of that, the mechanism was expanded in twenty twenty two and twenty three to cover over a hundred thousand more households now in six districts. So, I think when we can build off of those successes and show, especially the cost benefit and the return on investment for donors, for governments, and how fast we can move, I think that should help build the case further. But I think we still need to be able to document this and talk about social protection in a clear and an understandable way to people outside of our sector. Thank you. We tend to be a little bit focused on social protection on this podcast, but of course,
0: there's so much more to it. Are you able to comment a little bit just on, I guess, more broadly, what countries do prioritize in their national action plans or what are the calls from countries on existing sorts of finance?
3: Good question. And national adaptation plans or NAPs are, I think, also work in progress, depending on what country you're in. There aren't actually that many of them yet, but things that we're seeing come up more a lot is on infrastructure, on health. Um, we'd like to see gender inclusion incorporated more into national adaptation plans. We know if, if we're not being inclusive in how we we plan for climate impact, we won't be reaching all of our other uh, SDG goals and other development um, objectives, too. So as we look towards 2025 and especially the next round of NDCs to keep a lookout for more in this space, I think especially coming out of COP28 and with kudos to the COP presidency, the push on food security will really show the importance that countries are placing on food security as we are seeing increasingly climate change impacts on people's and communities' ability to feed themselves This is a space to watch and grow. We need a a whole set of tools to be able to make sure that countries and communities are able to protect themselves against the the growing climate impacts.
0: Yana, the ILO hosted the Just Transition Pavilion at COP for the second year in a row. And as we've heard previously on this podcast, transitioning to post-carbon economies will require a whole range of economic and social shifts. How is that discussion advancing and how did it advance at COP28
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, in fact, um, another important decision at COP28 um, was around the definition of the scope uh, of the Just Transition Work Program, which um, was established one year earlier at COP27 in Egypt. Um, And in this context, the approved text explicitly mentions the need for social protection to mitigate the potential impacts associated with the transition. Um, And we might interpret this as a reference um, for the need For providing um, temporary income support, for example, through unemployment protection or also social assistance to people whose employment or incomes have been affected by environmental policies, um, for example, and who are affected by higher energy prices as a result of the removal of fossil fuel subsidy or also carbon taxes. So what is actually interesting, I think, in that regard is that um, the text also refers to social protection in the context of ensuring that the new jobs emerging from the transition are what they call decent jobs, or in other words, ensuring that they come with access to social protection. So I think while particularly this idea of the need for social protection for compensation is gaining traction, I think that that second idea, you know, making sure that emerging uh, opportunities also come with social protection access, it's maybe something that is still a little bit newer in that sense. But I think what it also sort of tells us is that similarly, as in the case of loss and damage, is that we need to develop this understanding that social protection is not some sort of one-off activity or program or special thing that you have to do, but that it's really a system that requires investment and and that that's true, particularly in lower and middle income countries. I think it was very encouraging to see that for the first time, social protection was referred to uh, in texts across different climate negotiation work streams. So including just transition that we just discussed. Um, loss and damage that we've also discussed, and the global goals for adaptation that Anne mentioned briefly earlier. So now I think we really need to make the link across these streams and um, to make sure that it's understood that that what's needed are social protection systems that cover everyone that's affected by different risks across their life cycle, which includes risks linked to the transition um, or climate change itself. So in that sense, while we need specific adaptations and innovations, We don't need sort of a a special social protection for just transition, a special social protection for loss and damage for adaptation, but we need comprehensive systems that can then be enhanced um, by linking them to different sectoral approaches, such as disaster risk management in the case of loss and damage or skills policies and other, you know, active labor market policies and training as the case for just transition. Thank you. And that's a great point to remember that at the end of the
0: day, we really are just talking about comprehensive universal social protection systems. Um, Gala, as we've mentioned briefly already in this interview, there was an increased focus at COP28 on agriculture and food systems, food security, recognizing that a third of global emissions come from food production and distribution. And I understand this is the first time that these issues have been discussed at COP, at least to this depth with with this kind of level of attention. Where do you see the potential for social protection to contribute to this enormous task of food systems transformation?
1: Thank you, Joanne. I would highlight three dimensions where you see the potential for social protection to contribute to food systems um, transformation. First, I want to highlight that social protection, of course, supports the economic sustainability of food systems by, for example, enhancing the productivity of farmers, increasing investments that allow households to diversify their livelihoods and ultimately acting as a catalyzing in local rural economies. So, for example, in Malawi, FAO found that access to regular social protection enables farmers to sustain the adaption of climate-smart practices for multiple years. So, secondly, uh, of course, social protection can also improve the social impact of systems by, for example, improving food security and nutrition outcomes, which in turn, of course, helps addressing poverty, and vulnerabilities in the long run. So in Zambia, for example, the child when program moderates the negative effect of weather shocks on poor households by providing them with regular transfers that increase their food um, security in the immediate and mid and long term. Third, and really relevant to the discussion we are having here today, social protection also improves the environmental sustainability of food systems by supporting the resilience and adaptation to climate change. And this at two different levels. So first at household level, since it facilitates the adoption of climate adaptive, um, agricultural practices and technology, but also the diversification of income sources and livelihoods, both off-farm and on-farm that are less sensitive to climate variability. Secondly, it also has an impact at territorial level since it can contribute to natural resource management and ecosystem restoration efforts, but also to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So to kind of illustrate that, I would like to, to share as a first example the Seguro de Fezo program in Brazil, which is an unemployment insurance for artisanal fishers to compensate for income loss during the closed fishing seasons, so for each month of the DEFESO, so up to five months per year, registered fishers are entitled to receive an amount equivalent to the minimum wage, so a higher amount than the flagship cash transfer program in Brazil, which is the Bolsa Familia, um, supporting the diversification of their livelihoods and maintaining basic consumption needs, while allowing for fishing stocks to regenerate, so kind of meeting socioeconomic and environmental goals at the same time. Finally, there is also evidence from Nicaragua, Ghana, and Bangladesh, for example, that shows that combining social assistance with asset transfer and or vocational training leads to positive outcomes around climate-related adaptation behaviors.
0: And coming back to you, other forms of climate financing have fallen short of targets in terms of the pledges that countries are making. The targets themselves, of course, also don't really come near the true estimated costs of climate change. Why are these funds important and how can they best be leveraged to make a difference in vulnerable countries?
3: Thanks for, for a really important question. It's absolutely the case that we do need to dramatically scale up investments in, in climate action globally and from all sources, if we're gonna meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. In my view, the the 100 billion goal, it's really instructive. And it's been a a learning experience. When the goal was set way back in 2009, that's over 10 years ago. And at the time there was virtually no dedicated international support for climate action. And since 2009, uh, we've seen countries dramatically improve the international cooperation around the climate agenda. And using first and foremost, we sort of started with building off of all of the work we've done in international development over decades of experience. So we development agencies and multilateral development banks have, have been playing a key role in this effort. And according to the OECD, the developed countries are likely to have met the $100 billion target we set for the first time in 2022. And I think, as I mentioned before, un- under the Biden administration, we've really sought to, to lean in and do our part to support our developing country partners. And President Biden has pledged to work with our Congress to scale up annual U.S. climate finance to over $11 billion a year by 2020. And our estimates are showing that we're on track to meet this pledge. And that's far and away the highest level of U.S. investment in climate internationally in our history. But we're also seeing that these traditional approaches and just donor led approaches just are really starting to reach their limits. We know the private sector has a huge key role to play uh, in investing in climate and the economy of the future has got to be by definition climate resilient. So we need to think creatively about how we can deploy the scarce really valuable public funds that we have and to leverage and crowd in private resources to do uh, as much good as, as possible. In the U.S., we're really thinking about how we can use tools like everything from blended finance to de-risk critical investments that are just beyond the appetite of the private sector, and then try to make those things more financially attractive so we can invest in more action in more places to get the job done and can get the private sector involved in supporting climate resilient economic growth, which is good for people, good for business, and I think obviously good for the planet. Just to stress, um, these approaches can and shouldn't replace our grant-based investments in all cases. But I think we just need to be more thoughtful about how we deploy the most concessional resources to really target and support the most vulnerable, as well as how we can make these funds go further uh, to meet the the needs and make climate action everyone's business as it's impacting everyone and part of growing a, a better economy for the future.
0: So finally... The remit of COP has broadened significantly since it was first established by the UNFCCC in the mid-90s to agree to emissions reduction targets, to include a range of connected issues like the ones we've talked about today. What other themes do you think will emerge through future COPs, especially to ensure that the economic and social needs of vulnerable people are taken into account?
1: I think upcoming issues, or let's say growing areas of, of concerns and attention would be the trade-offs between environmental and social policies. So for the agricultural sector, for example, that means supporting farmers to uptake really climate-smart agricultural practices, which may take years to regenerate soils, to increase access and better management of natural resources. So it's not like just adopting new skills which can facilitate uh, a job in urban areas, for example. It means really interacting and restoring whole ecosystem areas and really reinventing and rethinking production practices now. So these in the agriculture sector can take years. And so this is very important to, to look at. It's very important to look at how to support the transition to green jobs in agri-food systems. So I think those trade-offs is, are very important, and they have a key role to play.
3: I really appreciated Gala's point on the, the food security side, of additional focus of future cops, and water is also going to be critically important to people's access to water, the tension between agriculture, the use of water versus human consumption, and how we need to make sure we're protecting all of those things. But appreciated the points about trade-offs. These are, there's a whole host of problems to address. And we really need to be thinking about co-benefits and different ways of of working together.
2: Yes, I mean, Gala, I also really liked your point. And to me, actually, what that speaks to is that we need to do a lot more work also in making sure that the concept of a just transition is really understood as exactly those those trade-offs, right? Across the different sectors, because... I think what we see or what we hear again and again is that many people, when they hear just transition, they think first and foremost of the energy sector and the energy transition. And that that is a really important part of the just transition, of course, but um, a just transition is just as relevant, you know, to the agricultural sector as well as to other sectors. So... I'm really hoping that with the establishment of the Just Transition Work Program, um, exactly this can be done to make sure that we can start bringing this under this umbrella and that countries then can start developing policy approaches that really recognizes um, this trade-off and that makes sure that people actually have the support that they need in order to not only be compensated for any negative impacts but also take advantage of new opportunities and transform the way in which they uh, do things you know the kinds of livelihood that they engage with so I mean I think um I think it it really all hinges on on the financing now again and again we know the issues I think the research is is, is fairly advanced we have a lot of potential solutions social protection being one of them but the financing is, is, is still really lagging behind. And I think this is really where um, future COPs need to deliver much more.
0: And Vaughn, Jana Bishla, and Gala Dalet, thank you so much for joining me on the Social Protection Podcast today.
3: Joe, thanks so much. And Gala and Yana, great to hear and learn from you all. Thank you very much, Joanne, for the invitation.
1: Thank you, Joe, and the socialprotection.org uh, platform for organizing a really interesting discussion and happy to exchange again in the future.
0: Before we go, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask our guests to bring in some recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Joining us for Quick Wins today is Hazel Calderón, who is the leader of Fisheries and Aquaculture Social Protection for FAO Colombia. Welcome, Hazel.
4: Thank you, Joel. Uh, first of all, my sincere thanks for this invitation. It's a, free, a pleasure for FAO to be part of this important podcast. I've hosted this podcast for almost
0: three years now, and one of my big takeaways is just how many kinds of issues social protection be, can be called on to address. One of the most interesting to me over the years has been the potential for social protection measures to support sustainable fisheries and SDGs related to life under the sea and biodiversity. FAO recently hosted a multi-day event called Sock Pro for Fish, which is very cute. I love that name. That was about countries exchanging experiences implementing social protection programs for the fisheries and aquaculture sector. We ran an episode about that last year that looked at Segura de Feso, which is a Brazilian program that provides income support, a kind of unemployment insurance, to fishers to compensate them for not fishing at certain types of the year so the fish stocks can regenerate. And one of my guests, Gala Dalet, also mentioned this program in our main interview today. Hazel, part of your workshop was about other countries, including Colombia, learning lessons from that program. So... I'd love to hear from you. What, what are those lessons in your mind and how do you think they can be applied in other countries?
4: We recently held an excellent workshop in Brasilia at the end of November last year, which provided a valuable platform for the exchange of experience on social protection. Among the topics discussed was defensor insurance, and we also delved into various approaches, including the model used by Paraguay, which places greater emphasis on subsidies. So um, also uh, I'm pleased to share that this workshop have a significant impact on Colombia because in August of 2022, the law 2268 was enacted focusing on social protection for subsistence and commercial features. And also this legislation mandates the implementation of a targeted mechanism for social protection during closed season, known as seasonal employment insurance for closed seasons or CELEVEDA, it is a Spanish acronym, and the insights gathered from the experiences shared by other countries during the workshop have proven invaluable, it not only um, contributes to our content understanding, but also enables us to replicate successful strategies. Thank you. I understand that you also had representation from the social
0: protection and fisheries sectors as well as civil societies from different countries at the workshop. What different perspectives did people from those different organizations bring?
4: During the workshop, we organised a panel in which both fishers and their representatives present the main challenges that fishermen face on a daily basis, as well as the main barriers that hinder their access to social protection. Interestingly, we discovered similar problems in all the countries invited to the workshop. This underlines the universal nature of certain challenges within the fishing community regardless of geographical differences. For example, lack of formal employment contracts. Many fishers work informally or on their own account. Without formal employment contracts, this lack of formal documentation can make it difficult for them to access traditional social protection benefits. Informality is The sector is one of the most representative problems in all countries, reaching more than 90%, and also the irregularity of income can make it difficult for fishers to contribute systematically to social protection schemes. Another one is fishing inherently risky with the possibility of accidents or health problems due to the exposure to the elements. There are some of the most significant barriers identified during the workshop in all the countries involved. And if people are interested in this topic, are there any papers or
0: resources you'd recommend?
4: Sure. You can uh, visit the FAO website, which is the www.fao.org, and search for social protection for fishers and aquaculture or subpro for fish.
0: Thank you. And we can put those links into our show notes. Thank you, Hazel, for joining me
4: on the Social Protection Podcast. Once again, I'm spreading my gratitude for this invitation.
0: And thank you for listening to the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at sp underscore gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And we are so grateful when you leave a review. Happy 2024. Back next month. See you then.